listening from around the world. This is the moment you've been waiting for. It's time! And now, introducing the host, a strength and conditioning coach, real estate investor, athlete manager, and amateur food critic. He stands five feet, 11 inches tall, and he's on the road to 185 pounds. Podcasting from around the world by way of Albuquerque, New Mexico. everyone and welcome back to another episode of the road to 185 show i am your host jared saavedra today i got a very special guest his name is emmanuel jones emmanuel is a financial advisor in the atlanta georgia area and he helps people create sound financial plans for short medium and long-term wealth generation Emmanuel dropped so many gems and jewels on this podcast episode. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So make sure you get your pen and paper ready. If you just have an iPhone and get that, get those notes out, you're going to, you're going to take at least 10 big bullet points with you today. So please welcome none other than Emmanuel Jones. Let's start off by uh, kind of you walking me through how you got into the, the finance industry. Sure, sure. So, um, well, first, my name's Emmanuel Jones, um, the second. And the finance industry has been something I've been in or kind of proxy in pretty much all my life, but in different aspects, right? So dating back all the way to undergrad, you know, finance was one of my one of my um, majors for my minor, to be honest. And from there, when I was working in the automotive industry, I was a finance director of about four or five franchise dealerships. So always been fascinated about finance. From there, also went to uh, got my MBA at Emory University and majored in uh, finance there as well. So been fascinated by it on the uh, M&A side, been fascinated by it on just the personal side, been fascinated by it uh, when it comes down to just personal finance on buying homes and buying assets and credit and things like that. So when it came down to the tip of the pandemic and um, I left, uh, pretty much left the family business, started out into uh, find out what I wanted to do, like what I wanted to give back and like how I wanted to impact people. Um, I saw an opportunity in wealth management to uh, really kind of bring a lot of knowledge that a lot of people really don't know down to kind of like the layman person. And that's what got me in this field of uh, wealth management on the finance side. But finance has always been a main vein for everything I've done. Okay. And so from from your past and your educational experiences at Emory, how did you kind of transition? Because I know you, you started off, did you start off in real estate, like primarily flipping? Mm-mm. So I started a real estate firm 
um, investment firm in 20 to, to what was it? It was 2019. Um, so it's only been a couple of years of, well, maybe about three years now what's going on for, of doing that. And that aspect of it really kind of opened my eyes to, you know, what do you do with all this money after you make it? And not only that, it introduced me to a lot of people that um, I knew in the same field who were kind of like mentors who were teaching us the ropes of like how to make this money in real estate, you know, and we're in the Atlanta market. The Atlanta market has been hot for 10 years straight. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it was it was pivotal for us to really kind of figure out what's that next step. And, you know, I'm looking at, I'm looking at, you know, large developers. I'm talking about large developers, big, you know, the, the billionaires who are buying skyscrapers or building skyscrapers and things like that. So on the highest level, I want to know how they accumulate, one, accumulated wealth and what they did with their wealth. So just kind of studying both facets of that kind of led me into, okay, hey, listen, you know, uh, people in real estate need help because one thing we can Absolutely. do is we can get the money and that's all we're focused on is the next deal, the next deal, the next deal. And it's kind of like when you make that pocket of money, you just want to look at it because you might go throw it into another deal. But at the same time, we should always be thinking about ourselves. we got to treat ourselves like a business if we're going to be a business. And in business, you always break off a piece for yourself and for your future. And there's certain ways where you can do it that's so tax advantage, especially if you're like really good in real estate and you're at the highest tax bracket. There's so many ways where you can break off pieces of that and really kind of put them in vehicles that can increase your wealth tenfold over the course of, you know, five to 10 years. Um, I talked to a lot of real estate uh, gurus who just wish they knew this knowledge when they started, you know, 20 years ago and stuff like that, just so that they could have so much more wealth sitting in different accounts right now versus always looking at just the real estate account. So that's kind of where yeah. I fit in and get plugged in with a lot of real estate guys. I'm involved with a lot of real estate groups and do a lot of talks with them um, and try to explain that aspect to them. Some listen, some don't, but hey, you know. Well, well speaking of that, I know you, you made a post on Instagram about maybe the differences of, of working with females as opposed to males. Does that have anything to do with that? <laughs> oh, yeah. That was a great <laughs> post, man. That was a great post. I'm telling you. They that, need to hear that, this. That's why I, that, I had to get that out. <laughs> I'll be honest. It, it, it's difficult working with men. You know what I mean? And I really think a lot of it has to do with uh, pride at the end of the day. You know, we don't want to be told what to do or we try to figure things out on our own. It's kind of like the whole, you know, movie concept or, you know, it might be real life for some people where they're driving down the road. The wife is like, can we pull over and get directions? The husband's like, I know where we're going. I got to feel for it. We're going to keep doing Some people do that with their finances the same way, you know, as opposed to stopping. Maybe we should get a financial advisor. Maybe we should talk to somebody. It's like, I got this. I can make it. I'm the man. Let's go. And that leads to a lot of people down, you know, a path where they don't really need to be going down. Granted, people's definition of success is always up to, you know, for them to define. But at the end of the day, there are better ways to just do things in general. Now, women, I think, um, at a certain point, they they suck in a lot of knowledge, and they are always, like, prepared to try to be better than the next. And, you know, we can go into all deep history about, like, why that's the case and things of that nature. But right now, where we're at and what I'm seeing is that women, like, drastically outnumber the amount of men that come seeking for advice, listen, are diligent, they can budget, and, you know, they don't have to have all the frivolous spending habits that a lot of men do. And that's that's interesting that you say that because so in my field in sport performance it's kind of the same way where most yeah. of my like online clients are like mostly mostly women and I think uh, it has to, a lot to do with the ego 
and you know they you know everybody all men kind of or most men believe that they that they know what they should be doing but that's yeah so i can definitely feel that so one thing in my field that i'm super curious about your field in the financial space is there there are levels as you already know there's levels to this whole entire game and so like in performance um you know there's certifications that you can literally just go get in a day or two while there's others that you need a degree just to apply for the process yet kind of the general population they don't really know that so in your industry are there kind of like a gold standard like certification Mm -hmm. license like how should people kind of determine and of course it's not just about what you have on paper being book smart you also have to have some application skills as well are there, what are the things that people should look at when looking to hire or work with a financial planner or advisor gotcha gotcha um first thing first is um you, you got to get rid of the bad actors um a lot of people will call themselves financial advisors when they're not really actually financial advisors they have a very limited scope of what they can offer um in order to kind of let that part out like that basic level part out there's a there's a website called um broker check you can just google it it's a website through finra and finra is the regulatory entity of the united states government that actually you know regulates financial advisors so you can go there you can literally type their name in whatever city you're in and figure out if that person actually is licensed because if they are licensed or have the license and the credibility then it's going to be listed right there because we have to take those exams so outside of that you know we got that basic level of people who you know the bad actors who can't really offer much but they're kind of coming in this field and they probably have intentions of getting to that point but they're not quite there um after that you got to take a series of exams you have to take your you have to take, get your series six your series seven your series 63 your series five 65 um, um your sie you know if you're doing variable if you're doing variable annuities you got to get your variable products in georgia that's a whole nother exam there um over the last probably 18 months i've taken a total of probably about five six different exams just to be at the point where i can sit here and tell you that i literally am the expert when it comes down to financial planning financial advising to the point that I can just charge people to sit down and you know let's talk about it um, and that comes with a lot of responsibility on my part too you know it's a fiduciary duty that's bound by law uh, for me to do what's in your best interest and if for whatever reason that doesn't happen then there are actually routes you can take to you know get me either like it's kind of like a, being a lawyer you know you go talk to the bar association like if they're not part of the bar association but they you know graduated law school that doesn't make them a lawyer you know what i mean right. um same thing on the financial industry like if we, if we if we don't have our you know credentials and we haven't taken our series and then passed all the state exams and the national exams in order then we're not actually a financial advisor we're just kind of talking but um yeah that's just things to check right there uh cf uh, uh certified financial planners too cfps they have a high level and a high bar that they have to achieve as well um in order to be that and just yeah general research when it comes down to it but yeah there yeah, are yeah, definitely i don't think there. a lot of people know those things yeah, I know, I know, because I know a lot of people who are walking around calling themselves a financial advisor who, who um, best thing they're trying to get you to do is just buy life insurance and they can't do much more than that, which is cool. Exactly. Life insurance is important, right? But right, there's so many other things. That's like a that's like a small piece of your whole financial scope. So we should never right. stop there. And if you really want someone to really deal with your money and stuff like that, you should need to have someone who has the ability to. 
Um, right. When I first started in this industry, you have to start out uh, going with the company that I went with, with New York Life. I had to start out with my life insurance license. I told them I'm going to be bored of life insurance within about 30 days. So what's the next things that we can do? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not here to peddle life insurance. That's not That wasn't the case. But I do know that life insurance companies, big, huge life insurance companies like New York Life and some other ones are, you know, that have been around for almost 200 years, are cornerstones for the financial industry. They predate the SEC. They predate the United States actually regulating trades of um, um, stocks and bonds and securities. So they have a lot of insight when it comes down to how they structure their business and gives me a lot of tools. But outside of just the insurance part, they also have the broker dealer part, where it's the buying and selling of securities, stocks and bonds. And they also have the investment advisory part as well, too, which I believe is the highest level um, because of the route that I went where you basically are certified and licensed to advise small businesses and individuals on investments, um, from individual investments to just investment strategies in general. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So take me through like a little scenario. So say, you know, I'm a real estate investor, you know, just like myself, uh, kind of take me through your client intake process. Like what are the main questions that you have for them so that you can kind of get like a, uh, a good financial like snapshot or picture of what you know a potential client would look like. Okay. So real estate investors they're unique uh, for a singular reason that their money comes in big waves. You know they will they will be cash poor for all of uh all of you know two and a half months and then have you know two hundred thousand dollars you know after selling a couple properties and things like that. The biggest advice I give for real estate uh, real estate investors is take off a piece for yourself. If you were working for a Fortune 500 company and you went into HR and you sat there and they're saying, okay, you know, how much do you want to put into your 401k? We recommend X, Y, Z amount. And typically it's around about 10 to 15% of what your salary is. When you're a real estate investor, you need to treat yourself the same way. I don't care if it's once a year that you have a big deal and you're just done or if it happens every month and you have several deals going on. Take 10% of the profits and put that to your future. Now, where that money goes, that really depends on your risk level, your timetable, how old you are, and a whole bunch of things like that. There's no way I can give blanket advice just on that, but definitely something that's going to benefit you for your future. You know, like whether whether you're putting it into your own self-made retirement accounts, if you're a little bit older, if you're a little bit younger, maybe you want to put in some mutual funds where it can sit over there. Maybe you want some tax advantages and you want to put in something like a variable universal life insurance policy where you can actually invest in the stock market underneath life insurance. That's a different product. That's a little bit better than just regular life insurance for people who are a little bit younger. But... Uh, yeah, it just really depends on your timetable and all the other aspects about your investor profile and your risk level. But definitely, definitely take at least 10% of it and put it in something, which is a big chunk because a lot of real estate investors, it's, like I said, you make that $200,000 profit, you're talking about putting $20,000 away. And I'm looking at you like, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Because you know? <laughs> I'm looking at a lot of, I know a lot of real estate investors who um been doing it for quite some time and they're still scrambling for the next deal, you know, when they're tired. <laughs> They've been doing it for yeah. 25 years and they're tired, but they need that next deal. They need this to go through. They need it. They need these funds. And it's just like you're making, you made yourself up to a point that you constantly have to keep scrambling. How about you make yourself up to a point where your account is so big and there's so much money in it that is scrambling for you. 
You know, if you got a mil- if you got a million dollars sitting in the bank account and you're getting on average a conservative ten percent interest, you know, by having it in some um by having it in some mutual funds, that's a hundred thousand yeah. dollars. You know what I mean? That's a hundred thousand yeah. dollars that's being paid to you. You can you can you can chill out for a little bit. Now let's double that. <laughs> let's have two million dollars sitting in that account. You know, now we're exactly. looking at two hundred thousand dollars, and we're we are financially free. We're not looking for the next deal. The next deal may come, but we have income. And that's the whole purpose. You know, I think a lot of people, when they get into real estate and start churning off that money, I really think a lot of motivation that drives through the real estate, especially on the investment side, is to try to um, pay off some debt, make some money to pay off some debt because the job's not doing it. And, you know, all the real estate seminars will kind of prove the same point that that's pretty much the majority. So after you get past that point, it's like, all right, now what do you do? You know, and how do you want to set yourself up? And that's why I will really urge people to keep that same enthusiasm, pay off your debt, cool. Get to a point where you're stacking up cash and put some of that cash away to the point where you get financially free. And I promise you real estate investing will be a lot more fun when you have a $2 million sitting in the bank churning off money for you anytime you want. Exactly. Yeah, no, that, I love that answer because it, it does depend. It depends on a lot of factors. It's just like, mm-hmm. again, even in my field and performance, when you know, it, it depends on so on so much. You know, your your medical history and your movement oh, yeah. and all those types of things. How it relates mm-hmm. to finances, it's it's awesome. Um, yeah. So, what what would exactly. you say are like the most common questions that you get? from potential clients. So I asked you what, you know, what things that you want to get out of clients to get more of that snapshot. What are, mm-hmm. what are the most questions that you get when it comes to finances? Uh, what about this crypto? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> that is, that is the number one question that I get. Um, and to like, just touch base on it. Uh, cryptocurrency is an unregulated investment right now. If you want to call it an investment, I call it a little closer to gambling, but, um, I agree on the side. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Completely unregulated and unregulated means one big thing, right? If you have a lot of money, hundreds of thousands and things like that, and you invested in a mutual fund that is regulated, if that mutual fund manager does something unethical or they just, you know, really just like go against your wishes or like whatever the case would be, if they mess up, you know, uh, in whatever capacity, you have a suit you can file and you are insured by the federal government um, through certain type of entities and they, and they can take action and you can be, you know, made whole uh, indemnified. But if you go into cryptocurrency, as we saw a couple of times, you know, some mean cryptocurrency shoot up and then shoot down and things like that, or some just disappear and it was completely fraud. There's nothing anybody can do about that. You know, you can take a civil suit and try to find the company and sue them yourself and spend, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and try to litigate that. Or you got to eat your losses, and that's just is what it is. So cryptocurrency, to me, closer to gambling right now. But there is a lot of regulation and a lot of talk going around it. So we're going to see some more structured funds um, that can allow seasoned investors and new investors get into cryptocurrency a little bit more protected. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's pretty much the biggest question that I get is what about this cryptocurrency? Um, other questions is really just like, you know, what what do I do? Uh, they will ask about like, how do I invest? When do I invest? Um, I've been buying some stocks here. I've been buying a little crypto here, but like, I, I want to get organized. I want to get structured. Like, how do I start that? What does it look like? 
And that's when we start diving into, you know, certain type of solutions that can work for them. Because at the end of the day, I want investing for you, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a corporate person, I want investing to be seamless. You know, uh, the same the same type of, you know, pattern that we get in with uh, 401k where it comes out my check and I almost forget that it's even coming out and I just get used to living off whatever shows up in the bank account after a while. But you're still stacking up a little fund right there. The same mentality we have there, we need to have on some of our outside investments outside of whatever company that we're, you know, getting our 401k through. Because the 401k was never meant to be the sole retirement vehicle. It was supposed mm-hmm. to supplement, you know. Um, and in our day and age, as we get older, the fact that Social Security is getting slimmer, the fact that pensions don't even exist in, like, the majority of companies in the United States is going to be more prudent for us to make sure that we organize some investment strategies and money goes into so that we can fund our retirement or we're going to be working till we die. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's exactly it. Uh, I actually got another question on the IG. So when I posted that I was going to be interviewing you and it kind of goes along with what, what you just said, uh, someone wrote in, you know, in 2022, should I invest more into stocks or real estate? I know you kind of answered that. Um, but, uh, that is a famous question. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like, uh, so right when I posted, I got, I was like, oh man, I'm sure, you know, it's going to be one of those, mm-hmm. of course it kind of depends, but, um, I mean, do you feel like a, a crash is coming? Do you feel what, what's your kind of like a uh, philosophy or kind of plan if that were to happen? Mm-hmm. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Okay. So one crashes are unavoidable. There's nothing you can do about them outside factors. Um, two, I'm going to assume a relative age gap that that person has. I'm going to say they're probably somewhere between 25 and 38 um, millennials. I don't know if they are, if they're on or they're not, but like I get that question a lot, mostly from that age group. Mm-hmm. And honestly, invest in both, definitely both. Uh, don't be afraid of crashes because the money you're investing, you should not be trying to live off of later. You know, it shouldn't be money that like I'm putting it in there and then I'm, I need to pull it out next year or I need to pull it out in two years. If we're investing for the long term, the stock market goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. But I will promise you, and I looked at it for verbatim for myself, if you look at every single crash that ever happened in the United States all the way back to the Great Depression in the 30s, you will see that the two years following those big crashes were the biggest gains that the stock market has ever seen. And the reason being is because as soon as crashes happen, everybody in the world panics. All the regular people in the world panic, let's put it like that. Um, Uh And they start selling it off. You know, mom and pop investors, you know, older people who probably should have had their money in fixed income, but they had their money in stocks and stuff like that. Like all of them, they start panicking, selling off, selling off, cutting their losses and just taking the losses and running and putting the money in the mattress because they're scared. And then what happens is all these big hedge funds, billionaires, they have all this money sitting on the side and they come and buy up all those stocks at a discount. And they had the biggest gains over the next two years after big crashes. So I will say if you are around that age, if you're around that millennial age and there's like a good 15 to 20 years of your work, you working, invest in both. Definitely need to have a stock portfolio going up. That's the biggest, that's the biggest hedge against inflation. Inflation is something that's very important that people should attend to right now because inflation was the highest it's been in 20 years. Um, actually, closer to 30 years, <laughs> actually, uh-huh. um, just now. 
that means the value of your dollar sitting in your bank account has just now gotten less. Everything else is going to go up in price, and your dollar is not going to be able to stretch as much. But had you been in the stock market over the last couple of years, you would have recognized, you know, 20%, 30% gains each year based off that same dollar, and you would have been way ahead of where inflation is right now. The biggest hedge against inflation are common stocks, stocks and companies. So you have to get in that game. You cannot avoid being in that game. Real estate does not mean taking away from that. I don't care if you have an account set up where it's just putting $500 a month into, you know, a stock portfolio. You do that over, you know, 20 years, it's going to be a significant portfolio. $500 a month is not going to stop you from buying real estate, is it? <laughs> you know, like if you $500 away from a real estate deal, then... I just, you need to talk to the seller and tell him to come down five hundred dollars. You know, like it's like it's not going to stop you from doing that. You need to do both. And real estate, on the other hand, is also a job. It is not passive investing. Um, I think you can attest to that, Jerry, because uh, you're getting deep in this game right here. It's not uh, passive investing. Like, it's no, not passive it's, about it. It's, it's a job. <laughs> like, you got, yeah, I no, mean, people like, just see HGTV and they think that's just how it goes every time. Hell no. Hell no. There's always an issue. There's always a problem. You gotta, you're, you're being your own contractor, too. I'm sorry. I don't know if you talk about your personal business here and stuff like that. Yeah, no, no, um, no. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, cool. So you're being your own contractor. You're dealing with each and every single subcontractor to build to to fix this house up. And then say, all right, I don't even want to fix houses up. I just want a whole bunch of rental properties. Cool. Go out and buy a whole bunch of rental properties. Now you got to make sure your property management company is on point collecting rent. And you saw over the last two years where there's been basically a hiatus on all evictions. So you had people sitting in homes where you could not evict them. They didn't have to pay nothing. And you don't have to be paying all the bills because banks didn't stop, you know, collecting. Because they were foreclosed on your stuff <laughs> and then take it. So, like, certain things like that, certain risks that come with it, too. You got to be prepared for that. If you got the energy for it, if you got the time for it, by all means. But a lot of people who are, you know, hardworking in their job that they're doing, um, excelling in the job, whether they could be nurses, doctors, you know, IT professionals, security professionals, things of that nature. And the best bet for them, in my opinion, is focus really hard on your job, get make more money, and stick it in some portfolios if you have enough time where you're not going to need that money. Now, if you want to start dabbling in real estate and get into it, be prepared to spend time. It's not going to be just I dump money in and it's going to work for me. Be prepared to spend time in it. Learn the game diligently and then get into it, you know, responsibly. Preferably probably with a partner. Yeah, exactly. And I do that with my wife because I would have probably made some, some foolish mistakes had I not had her for sure. Yeah, yeah. having two eyes on it definitely helps. Yeah. What would you say, like, um, maybe a, a misconception that you see you know, kind of people's behavior as far as, and it, can, it kind of makes you cringe. And I'll give you an example. So, you know, five years ago when I took out a, a loan for my equipment at my gym, it was, I got it at a really good rate, you know, 2.9%. I think it was around 35 grand for this loan. And I was just so obsessed with, you know, paying it off because I felt like, oh, I, I, I want to be debt free. I don't want to have debt. I don't want to have debt. But at the end of the day, like it was only 2.9%. Um, and that could have, obviously, the money that I was paying off my debt, that could have went into the stock market. That could have made me yeah. a lot more money. That could have been working for me. What are some other yeah. type of behaviors that you see from people that just kind of makes you cringe when you, when you see it? And you're like, man, if you only knew, like, if you just changed that one little one little thing, this could change your entire future. What would you say that there's 
it's the most common. Well, piggybacking off your 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 personal loan for the equipment, um, you know, student loans as well. A lot of people mm-hmm. are very obsessed with their student loans, getting those paid off. But if your student loan is underneath five percent, then if you pay what you need to pay. You definitely don't want to mess up your credit or anything like that. But like, it is not a it is not a huge race to pay off that cheap money. That's what we call it. When there's a low interest rate, assignment money is cheap money. So it shouldn't be a rush because that's saying money put into the market over the course on average on three years three year averages could definitely probably turn off ten to fifteen percent. And the difference between that, you know, that ten percent difference, let's see, difference between five percent and ten and fifteen percent, ten percent difference, um, is just more money in the bank for you. You know, now, uh-huh. honestly, that interest alone can you know keep paying your student loans down. But um, that's one. But uh, I guess the biggest thing that makes me cringe is when people um, when they get serious about their finances. They start stacking up so much money in their savings account, and I see so much money in savings accounts. Uh, yeah. Things are yep. just such a or or if anybody ever mentions a high yield savings account to me, I might lose it because there's nothing high yield about it. <laughs> like this, this right. shouldn't even be called that. It actually should be illegal because people get bought into the fact that they think it's a high yield. So yeah, that's probably the biggest thing that makes you cringe: just money sitting stagnant, not doing anything. It's kind of like. It's kind of like I think of your money as a as a, a member of your household, and it's just sitting there lounging around, not contributing to any chores. It's not washing any dishes. It's not it's not doing anything to help you out. It's just sitting there free just just freeloading in your house. And you know you wouldn't have anybody just doing that in your home. You know, from kids to family members to friends or anything like that. So why was your money going to be sitting there having no job and not doing anything? Everybody should be contributing to the lifestyle, and your money should be too. Perfect, perfect, man. Great episode, man. I won't, I won't keep you any longer, dude. I really appreciate the time. Um, what are some ways some people can get a hold of you if they want to connect with you? What's the best way? Sure. Um, Instagram is at at Mr. Jones Finance. Um, you can go on Instagram. My link is in the bio where you can go in and get in contact with me through my New York Life page, or you can hit me a DM there. Um, I'm, I'm yeah, really, I'll have all I'm, this I'm really open. as well in the, in yeah. the description as well. Yeah, yeah. People know social, so like go through social. You know, when you go to my New York Life page, my number's there and all that. I won't bother giving it over the podcast. You know, people can find it if they really want it. And and let's go from there. But I would just say, you know, people just like, as we go into year 2022, like, just get serious. Even if it's not a huge deal, even if it's not just, even if it's just like sticking to saving a couple hundred dollars a month, just get serious about your finances and then start progressing from there. Don't be daunted by the fact that you feel like you're behind or you feel like I should have started this or like, you know, I, I just don't know what to do. The worst thing you can do is do nothing. So... That's what I'm here for. That's what I try to advocate for. And that's what I will hope that people take moving forward. Yep. If you're listening, definitely get a hold of him. You have any questions, you know, slide in the DMs. He's super helpful and is, is always encouraging, man. Manuel, I appreciate you, bro. Absolutely, Jared. Anytime. <laughs>